Welcome to the Pilgrim's Well podcast. Pilgrim's Well is a resource for Christians wherever they are in their journey. We're excited to have you join us on this next episode. Welcome to the Pilgrim's Well podcast. I'm your host, Alex Sigma, with my co-host, Paul Van Englenhoven. Um, so I wanted to discuss with him, we will, we first, so first we started with episode 83 with this new liberation theology, I guess, trilogy of videos. Relatively new. Uh, relatively new, <laughs> I guess. Um, and the first one was just setting the building blocks for what liberation theology is and tracing back its history, where, it, where it's come from. Um, and then in episode 84, we dived in a little bit deeper from more of a biblical theological standpoint. Where does theological, where, where does liberation theology really stand in its argument, like from a, you know, how, do, how does it basically use scripture to support its point of view? And then how does real biblical theology be, it, like become more like the, the best answer, the more accurate answer. Yeah, um, hermeneutically, how do we respond to? Yeah, like what's the theology? best way to read the Bible hermeneutically? Do you just come at it with a certain bias or do you just read it from cover to cover just as it is? And then we see that it's it's really, the Bible is explaining a story of sin and how it affects us versus, versus like economically, politically, you know, who's the oppressor, who's the oppressed and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. So in this episode, uh, so the, the last two videos were building up to this episode where we want to get more into the practical application of, of this. Mm-hmm. And where do we see liberation theology come out so in the, in the modern time period today? And uh, what I did is, well, I found this article, which is where this whole conversation got started. So a little bit of a backstory is, um, of course, with my school and going to this uh, this other church where we performed this choir event, um, I found an article from uh, written by the pastor of this local church that um, that we kind of want to go over. And that's when I showed Paul the article, we started getting into this, and we were like, you know, let's do this. Is coming from I think a liberation theology movement it's just the superficial like this the surface level i should say this is the surface level of where we're seeing this come out and we should spend some time like really going back and covering okay this is what the movement is this is what it's become this is their theology and then after we build up a firm foundation for how to understand this we can get into the article so now we get to get into the article today um yeah, can I just say it? And I'm For just sure. really excited that we're doing this one. Um, I was a little hesitant at first because uh, the article, as you will notice, is pretty radical. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think it's going to make great conversation talking about this. The reason why I like this article rather than, you know, an Oxford handbook or something like that, it's. Um, like a scientific journey or something like that, a journal, um, is this article is the way that the conversation goes on the street, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? In in the common crowd. And I think it's important for us and, and for you know all of us as, as listeners as well uh, to be able to hear the arguments and, and to respond to it, and to mm-hmm. give a biblical uh, response to the entrance of wokeism really in the church. 
I think yeah. that's that's what it comes down. I think liberation theology has opened the door for what's modern, I think now predominantly called wokeism mm -hmm. uh, into the church. Yeah. Okay. So do we want to dive into it? Absolutely. All right. So this article is entitled "Why Invite Drag Performers," and it's so it's an article. Um, this is from a church, by the way. So they're asking. Uh, why should we invite drag performers to church? And it's a bit of an argumentation. Uh, I think it's kind of presented as an, as an argument paper Absolutely. with uh, what I believe is a thesis. And it is trying to back it up with, with evidence to support that this is a, a legitimate reason why we should invite drag performers to a church service or to, to yeah, I think for a, as part of like a church service. Um, so she begins the article, um, which, by the way, we'll link this article in the description. Basically, it will explain the whole thing as we go along. But um, I would say that the the whole point of the article is that I think the, the thesis, first of all, that I'll, I'll probably start with to really give you a basic you know idea of what the article is, is that drag is not dangerous, it's not sinful, and it's not harmful to children. So let's get into the first paragraph and then we can begin to dive this, dive into this, break this down. Um, the first sentence reads, fascism is on the rise in America. <laughs> Do we want to stop there? Well, I think the, uh, the, the point is interesting, right? So the, I think here you can clearly see the liberation theology influence. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is good for, for our listeners to understand and just to be able to how to read um, whether fascism is on the rise in America or not. That's debatable. I mean, she doesn't give any defense of that. She just makes this a statement. So that's her, um, I'd say, opinion, or at least what she believes is is factual. And I think in America, uh, there's a division on this question. But the point here is, is um, why do we invite drag performers into the church? Right? What's, why does the church open its arms and its heart towards uh, drag performers? Well, because the world is not a safe place. They're oppressed in the world. So now as a church, we are to uh, liberate the people that are oppressed and save them out of the world by inviting them into the church. So you see the liberation um, focus yeah. uh, on this. And I think that uh, the, the uh, author... And as we link it, I think we can use the name, right? So, uh, yeah. uh, Pastor Joe Barr, I think she is, um, uh, I don't know if she identifies as she, but... Uh, I think she identifies as they, them. But, okay. Yeah. Pastor Joe Barr um, would agree that this is connected to liberation theology. Mm -hmm. I, I, I doubt it if, she, if, if Pastor Joe Barr would disagree. Yeah. So the first targets of for new waves of extremism include people of color, women, and the transgender community. LGBTQ plus rights and events are being outlawed across the country. Drag performance has become illegal in numerous places, leading to a denial of the First Amendment freedoms and harassment of gay affirming organizations. So, yeah, so she's saying people of color, women, well, first of all, the people of color and women that is that wait hold on do i want to get into that first no i mean if, if i could respond yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, respond to that first the question is always when you say is on the rise um you, uh, supposedly you'll have a time frame in your mind hmm. right it's on the rise since 
this point in time. Uh, you could say, uh, I could make an argument and say, um, the, the economy is growing. Okay, since when? Mm -hmm. I could say since yesterday afternoon, uh, if somebody just made a, a big purchase, let's say um, uh, there was a big pouring in of money, I could say the economy is growing in some sense, right? Or money is increasing. So the question is always since when is, is something on the rise or something growing? Uh, if you look at America and its history, the way that I, you know, I'm not an American, so um, mm -hmm. I view America perhaps more throughout its history. Uh, if you're saying that uh, new waves of extremism include people of color, women, and a transgender community, that they are the first targets, I think you'd be hard-pressed to say that we now live in a day, if you look at American history as a whole, where uh, people of color, women, and the transgender community have the hardest time in American history. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, if you take people of color, if you can compare today to the time of slavery, that's an impossible argument to sustain, mm -hmm. right? Things are much better, which is wonderful uh, for people of color. Um, I think that uh, the, the distinction, at least in the law uh, and in general, uh, between the different ethnicities that live in America is... Um, uh, much more equal, uh, and I think in the law, it's, uh, it's it'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to find a law that that um, decreases the ability of men or uh, of women, of people of color, or even the transgender community. Mm -hmm. So I think the the statement is a bit overdrawn, but you know the the author might have a particular time frame, well, you know, in the last six years, the last eight years or something like that. So, uh, yeah, without time frame, it's a little hard to agree or disagree mm -hmm. with it. I, I think it's an, I think it's a far-fetched mm -hmm. point. Because like slavery, the days of slavery, I mean, those were ex pretty extreme. So it'd be really easy to say, well, that can't be. But even since the days of like MLK, I would say, things are still better now in America I would, since the days of MLK. So it's Absolutely. still even, it still applies that that doesn't necessarily work, essentially. I don't know. But, and and yeah. it's defensively so, right? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's factually better than that time. If yeah. you just look at the laws and the conditions and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you, at least if you look at economic and freedom issues, which is which the, ba the basic idea of the, the argument, things are better. Yeah. Right. Uh, family sphere, different different issue. Right. I think there's more brokenness in homes in America in general, perhaps than at that time. But if you look at between people groups, uh, between the government and different people groups, oh, you know, a, a world better. Yeah. So, but you know, the the point that that uh, the author is making is that uh, events are being outlawed across the country, um, and so the pictures that is being drawn is uh, right now the LGBTQ plus community, because because she, uh, so the author shifts from that. Right, it starts mm -hmm. with people of color, women, transgender community, and then boom goes to LGBTQ plus, uh, and well, this is being suppressed. I just disagree. Yeah, I think it's 
impossible to to show that that's the case. There's pushback against it, but it's not an increasing pushback. And the question then, uh, from a Christian perspective, is: Is the pushback justified or not? Mm-hmm. Right? Is it uh, is it right? Or, or the basic premise is: Is it right to outlaw any event of any particular community? Mm-hmm. Well, well, I would say yes. Uh, right? I mean, there's things that are against the law, that are against the good of humanity in general, uh, and as a Christian, against the biblical standards. So should there be things outlawed? I think we could all agree that a Nazi gathering uh, that is discussing how to bring back uh, the the Third Reich would be something that we would outlaw. Yeah. That we would forbid, yeah. right? So the question is not, uh, is it bad to outlaw things? But the question is, the things that are being outlawed, if they were outlawed, uh, are those things, from a Christian perspective, supposed to be outlawed or not? Mm-hmm. But anyway, mm-hmm. I'm getting into a little <laughs> political depth here, <Yeah. laughs> which is not my field. But yeah. you know, from a Christian perspective, I think that's the question. It's not, yeah. are certain people facing hardships? The question is... What is God's perspective on these things? Mm-hmm. So the next sentence is a paragraph that stands on its own. This is why Plymouth United Church of Christ is standing up for drag as an essential part of American culture and a sacred form of art. Yeah, hugely problematic. Hugely. And, and the reason mm-hmm. why it's problematic um, is not because we don't want to um, protect American culture as citizens. Um, the question is, is drag part of American culture, and do you want to keep everything in American culture? Um, yeah. uh, you know, uh, there was a time in America where slavery was part of the culture. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't want to keep that or bring that back or protect slavery yeah, as ju- part of the culture at that time. Just right? because it was American culture doesn't mean it was right. <laughs> it doesn't make it right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's forms of art that are uh, wrong. Yeah. Uh, right. So not everything that somebody comes up with that that they want to display in some kind of way into the world is by definition right. Right. But even apart from that, um, this is the problem I think with the liberation theology and where you can see it it being distra- distracted from what it's called to be. It's called to be the body of Christ proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world. Here, uh, the purpose for this part, at least, this pastor writes that um, their church is standing up for the American culture and art. Mm-hmm. Right? So the mission has shifted uh, from we are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, bring the saving message of Jesus into the world to lost sinners, to we need to protect a particular part of the art of our country and the cult of uh, the culture, sorry, of our country. Yeah. Right. So I think that's the to me that's the one that that stands out. And then to use the word sacred is I mean that that just makes the hair on my back stand up. <laughs> honestly, um, I understand that you can use the word sacred in different ways, right? That there's the religious sense where sacred is holy and connected to God, and then there's sacred as something that is very special. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that so people use it in, in English in, in different uh, ways, I understand that. But when you say, I'm a pastor writing, and you use the word sacred, my, my gut response is, you should know better. 
to to use this word in the way that the Bible uses it, and the Bible uses sacred, uh, in, and, and sacred is another word and form for holiness, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it uses it uh, to God and everything related to God, mm-hmm. um, which we should not use the depth of that word. Mm-hmm. Let me just hold myself there until yeah. we get to further points. <laughs> Next paragraph, in Jewish tradition, Purim celebrates the day the people of God were saved from Haman and the first Persian empire with various festivities, including drag performances. According to the Talmud, in special cases like Purim, cross-dressing is not only allowed, but can be an expression of sacred joy. Yeah, my response would be, so what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the question is, and especially as a Christian, um, if if uh, in Jewish tradition Purim celebrates this this day, this is by the way a debated point. This is not a every Jew agrees with drag. Uh, you go to an Orthodox and say, "Do you think that you should celebrate this?" And he will definitely and most convincingly say no. All right. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 taken out of context. But you know, as the author is not putting any references there of, of what the author is referring to, I'm not going to go into um, my defense of at this point. But the point that is for us as Christians is, so what? That they were Jews in the past that interpreted uh, a festival where they said cross-dressing is okay. The point is, and this is for Jews and Christians alike, what does Scripture say? Because even in the Jewish tradition, the Bible trumps every every other book and every other tradition, yeah. right? So the question is, uh, how do we interpret Scripture? And in the Scripture, in the law, it's clearly forbidden. A man mm-hmm. shall not wear uh, a woman's clothing, and a woman shall not wear man's clothing, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's scripturally forbidden. So uh, yeah, I'm just I just kind of had to chuckle when I read it the first time. It's like, okay, so you're gonna say that it is. Uh, you know, you're writing as a Christian pastor, and the first quote is from, or the first evidence that you bring to the forth, this is why we do it, is Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. I think she was using that paragraph to connect it to, or I should say the author was using that paragraph to connect it to how it's a sacred, using the word sacred, but then saying it's sacred because it was a religious thing that the Jews were doing here. It was a religious thing here and there, and it's just, well, I mean, it's not just about <laughs> like a, a religious sacred kind of thing. The whole point is just, okay, it, this isn't about religious tradition. This is about like, what does scripture really say? And then how do we work that into the church? Yeah, but then you come into the the whole merging and pushing together of all religions, yeah. right? Because every religion has its holy things uh, and sacred things, uh, but every religion says our things are the true sacred things, not yours, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's that's the, the um, and because they're contrary, mm-hmm. right? If one says our God is the true and living God. That's why he's sacred and he's holy. And another one says, no, our God uh, or our gods are sacred and holy. And they don't match with each other, mm-hmm. right? If you say only our God or only our gods, you can't mix the two. 
So to say, I belong to um, the God of the Old and New Testament, and that is sacred. And then you're saying, um, and then you go to um, the, the Judaism that focuses on the Old Testament but denies Christ uh, as a religion and says, uh, this is why we, why we call this sacred. You've got two different opinions. Okay, so I have something to say on this, actually. Uh, I'm not, okay, so there is a, there is something where, you know, girls will sometimes go to thrift stores and where they're thrifting, they might find a sweater that is really nice or is really colorful or whatever, but it's a it's a guy's sweater because of the, the size. So it's a, they're just saying that it's a guy's size sweater, mm-hmm. but they'll, they'll still buy it and wear it. If that happens, isn't that kind of considered cross-dressing if you're buying... If a girl is buying guys' clothing, no. Well, so the, the law in Deuteronomy, uh, what is stating is uh, a man should not dress up like a woman, mm-hmm. and a woman should not dress up like a man. Right? That's the idea. So it's not uh, uh, make sure it says man or masculine yeah. in your robe, <laughs> right? Yeah. But but uh, um, do you intend? to dress like what is culturally understood as a man while you're a woman or as a woman while you're a man. That's the issue. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to a thrift store and you find a sweater and you're looking at it and you're saying uh, you're you're a man and you say, this is a nice sweater, I think it's probably more the other way around. But if you're a woman and you look at a sweater uh, and you say, well, hey, this is in the men's section, but hey, they, these sweaters look just like women. And when I wear this sweater, people are not going to think, are you trying to be a man? Right? Then mm-hmm. it's not cross-dressing. Yeah. Right? Cross-dressing is the intentional purpose to mix and to confuse the difference between men and women. To to be to act like the opposite, and that's the that's the the purpose of the Deuteronomic law, right? So that's why it says don't mix, and it's in the in the uh, line of the different types of uh, commandments against mixing things. Mm-hmm. So, right? it's so it's a little bit more about identity. So it's it's saying like, oh, I really want to identify as a woman, so I'm going to intentionally go out there and buy women's clothing, get women's style, because I want to tell everybody that I'm a woman. So it's like wearing clothes to tell everybody you're identifying as another gender. Absolutely. Right? So that's what it can do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, it's, it speaks about don't break God's order right. and don't pretend that you are. Yeah, okay. Uh, so uh, if, you're, uh, if you know a sister that wants to buy a men's sweater but wants to look as a woman because men's sweaters and women's sweater, the only difference is the size and one just fits better, it's okay. <laughs> okay, good. That's a deep yeah. concern of mine, yeah. of course. Okay. Um, all right. The next paragraph states Christianity has also embraced drag as a symbol of holiness. Over twelve transgender people have been canonized as saints by the church. Um, in their hagiographies, did I spell that or pronounce that right? Uh, I think it's hagiographies. Hagiographies. Then again, okay. I'm not a native, so I I might make up. <laughs> native. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking yeah. what the the underlying words are, but mm-hmm. go ahead. Stories of saints. The fact that the holy person is trans was celebrated as embodying God's creativity. For thousands of years, theologians have argued that non-binary people represent the promise of a liberated and transfigured humanity. 
Special holidays were declared throughout the Middle Ages where cross-dressing would be allowed and promoted across the Christian community. And it doesn't state what holidays those were, and it doesn't state, and there's no references. So, here you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, uh, this is uh, first of all, it's a very weak argument uh, because the, you're kind of describing... Um, you're pretending you're going to talk about the whole, and then you take out a small section and says, this represents the whole, right? You can see that in the first sentence. Christianity has also embraced drag as a symbol of holiness. Now, wait a minute. What part of Christianity are you talking about? Are you talking about by and large? Are you talking about uh, our current understanding of Christianity? Are you talking about the historical Christianity over the ages? Are you talking about the majority um, of Christianity? When you say Christianity, we're going to understand, if you don't define it, as Christianity in general. right? So when somebody from another religion, let's say uh, uh, a Muslim friend would read this, they would say, oh, so for Christians, it's acceptable to celebrate drag. Well, historically, that's impossible to defend. Now, she's going to um, uh, identify 12 unnamed transgender people uh, that have been canonized by the, by the church. Well, here's another thing, right? She is from a what's supposedly a Protestant, so Reformation stream mm-hmm. church. She's now identifying church with, sep- uh, with capital C as the Catholic church. Right, so she's she first started with a Jewish argument. Now she goes to a Roman Catholic argument, and she's going to use the saints again, not biblical, right? Saints that have been um, uh, canonized as saints in these uh, in these stories that they were, um, you know, transgenders. So my response would be um, no. Christianity has not, by and large, embraced drag as a symbol. Otherwise, you didn't have to write this article today, right? If you have to defend to your own church, which this mostly is, right? It's a defense to their own church, why they invite drag performance. It's not to tell the world. It's it's primarily to the people that are close uh, to the author. Um, uh, these... Um, uh, 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 this argument of the church having embraced this is just factually wrong. Secondly, thousands of years theologians have argued is is clever, um, but all you'd have to do for that is find a theologian that 2,000 years ago you can interpret in some way that that person would accept drag if they lived today. So you got to make a, a switch between what you think they say cover it for 2,000 years and say today they would agree and find recently, so you know, the author uh, itself uh, is, is confirming that drag's okay. Then you have theologians, plural, over thousands of years. But when you read this, you get this idea, well, thousands of years, countless theologians have argued that drag is a symbol of holiness in, in the church, which it's not. Uh, I'm I'm a you know theologian working on my uh, PhD, so I think I can qualify uh, for that. I've never read, and I must say this is also not my area of interest. You know, kind of that, but I read um, a lot of theologians on a lot of passages uh, throughout. In my case, Old Testament studies, and I never see 
any interpretation of any commentary that says, look here uh, in this Old Testament passage, the author is most likely considering drag as a symbol of holiness. Um, so it's, it's a non-argument. Mm-hmm. It's Roman Catholic, which uh, I'll let the Roman, our lo- Roman Catholic friends respond to that, how they deal with that, and I think most of them, at least the conservative ones, would disagree that it's a symbol of holiness. And as a Protestant, there's no evidence that suggests that any Protestant at any time that is of any certain pedigree has ever agreed with that statement. Is that yeah. determinate <laughs> enough? Side note, what is your area of interest in uh, your dissertation? Yeah, Old Testament studies. So uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm hoping to graduate on Ezekiel and the, the topic of restoration in Ezekiel. Nice. Yeah. Ezekiel is a fun book. <laughs> oh, yes. Fun does not underline and underscore the brilliance of the book. But. Yeah. I mean, it's it's unique, that's for sure. But, um, okay, so... No in the drag next... performers in Ezekiel. No. <laughs> Guaranteed. Yeah. Uh, so, for these reasons and, bef- and more, stated in the previous paragraph, uh, Plymouth will be inviting drag performers to share their craft with our Christian community after church at the start of Pride Month. Now is an important time to tell our society that number one, drag is not dangerous, two, is not sinful, and three, it's not harmful to children. So I would say that this paragraph is like the heart of the paper, right? You would say this, this is probably their thesis. Yeah, I mean, it's it's her main um, response to the question, why invite drag performers? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the question, of course, is um, uh, what's the evidence for this? Uh, is it not da- what areas of danger are you talking about? Is it not dangerous for anyone in any perspective at any point? Um, well, the, the, I would then go right away to the second one before answering the first one. It's not sinful. Um, well, excuse me, but you have not at any point thus far, nor will you ever in the rest of the article talk about scripture, mm-hmm. right? So just that you can find something in the Jewish tradition and something in the Roman Catholic tradition that has accepted this doesn't make it not sinful. Mm-hmm. Right? And the whole Old Testament uh, and and big parts of the New Testament, look at the book of Acts with uh, Ananias and Sapphira, um, is talking about sin has crept into the church where people, uh, and in, in the Jewish nation, where people say they're part of the people of God and yet they sin. So finding somebody in the past of any religion and saying, therefore, it's not bad or it's not sin is, is an non-argument. Mm-hmm. My point being, going back to Deuteronomy, um, it is sinful, right? It's sinful not because uh, people like to do it or because I, d- I dislike it or I don't like to see it or something like that. That's besides the point, whether I like to see it or not like to see it, right? That's mm-hmm. not part of this argument. The point is, the book of Deuteronomy says clearly that a man should not dress like a woman and a woman should not dress like a man. Right, that it is, and it actually puts that it is a an ab- abomination before God. Right, mm-hmm. it's in that context, that legal context. So, uh, uh, and then not harmful to children. Where does that come from? Mm-hmm. Right, is it if it is sinful, 
it's dangerous because it will put God against you. And it's harmful to children because you're leading children in a wrong way. So I, I'd say the key of this is sinful. And then let's discuss the other parts. Uh, if the author can defense why it's not sinful, then we could discuss if it is dangerous. Because right? there's some things that are not sinful and that are potentially dangerous and that are potentially harmful to children. Um, but in this case, I would say it's sinful and therefore it's dangerous and therefore it's harmful to children plus a host of other reasons. Mm -hmm. hmm. What are your thoughts? Uh, Putting you on the spot. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Wait, let me collect my thoughts here. Do you think, let me, let me, yeah. let me press you on this one. Do you think that drag is harmful to children? I think so. Yeah, to put it, I mean, well, because of what you're saying, I'm trying to see in my mind, I, I automatically would say yes, but then I'm also thinking, but I have to prove it first before I can say yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm looking for, okay, what is like the proof or evidence that I have to work out the argument like physically in my mind. But you're saying because it is dangerous, because it is sinful, yes, it is harmful to children because you're leading them in the wrong direction. So in that case, yes, it is harmful to children because you're leading them in the wrong direction. So, yeah. Yeah, and, it's, and to me, I would say it's harmful to children uh, beyond the point, not just because you know, men dress up like women, uh, but also the um, in in modern drag, if if we call it that way, um, there are a lot of sexual overtones <clears throat> in the way that um, these drag performers dress, right? So you're uh, you're skewing and you're putting perversity, sexual perversity, in the minds of children. Mm. Yeah. Right, so a lot, this is not just you know a man dressed up like a woman, and and a child has no idea that it's actually a man, or something like that. Right, you have now you have uh, mixed with that in the performance art um, exaggerations, where it's not just dressing up like women, but women of a certain character and kind, at least that portray things in a certain way, mm -hmm. which to children, uh, with their minds being easily um, formed and confused and already struggle with yeah. with trying to understand the world that you put things out there that are so out of the ordinary and frankly wrong mm -hmm. um yeah i think it's i think it's dangerous for children that's the point yeah right yeah yeah i was just gonna say that because i realized you know there are a lot of children that are always like questioning they're always asking questions they're trying to understand reality and there's even some, I mean, there's some people that are like, don't teach kids like what depression is in school because they're going to come home thinking, oh, I'm depressed when really that they're not mm -hmm. because they're still trying to understand or grapple like what what clinical depression really is. And so to give them the idea that it actually exists, now they're curious about it and they actually want to, you know, try what it's like to become depressed and, mm -hmm. and see like what kind of reaction that would bring and stuff like that. So... Already when children are trying to discover what it really means to be male or what it really means to be female, you're not really laying the groundwork or the foundation when you introduce them to drag or transgenderism because now they're even more confused than, than they were before. So mm. it doesn't, yeah, it really doesn't work. 
for sure. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's it's uh, the way the drag performers often dress, and I'm sure there is uh, there are uh, exceptions to this. Um, I I wouldn't want my school teacher to dress that way. I don't want my female school teacher to dress that way as a female, let alone a male dress as a female in that way. Right, so it's it's even beyond the whole drag question. The way that it is portrayed is, I think, um, uh, not part of moderation and decency that, as Christians, we should aspire to. Right, I, I'm I'm talking to purely from a Christian perspective, uh, which I think is God's perspective, and so should be all our perspective. But as a Christian, especially, um, we are called to moderation, to decency, and to things that honor God that elevate God rather than, than men. Uh, think about it this way. Um, does the drag performer, if it is really a sacred art, does the drag performer seek to glorify God or uh, him or herself? Mm. I mean, it's a purely look at me. I'm dressing in a certain way. Look at me. Yeah, it's a glorifying of self. It's a glorifying of self. And, and there it's, I mean, beyond the extremes it goes to, there it's, it's sinful already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And therefore dangerous, and therefore harmful to children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think we've belabored the point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So with that being said, uh, we'll get into a really long, uh, basically I think a historical outline. Um, so I'll just get through that. But the next paragraph, and then the following that, the leadership at Plymouth recognizes that many church members may not know much about drag. Many of us have never attended a drag performance. And then the pastor gets into an explanation of what drag is. So I'll just read this whole thing uh, and then we can take that chunk. What is drag? The specific performance art that we can that we can drag has its roots in African-American and Hispanic American LGBTQ culture. In New York, many gay people of color were being kicked out of their homes, fired from jobs, and left to starve on the streets in the mid-1900s. Collecting in places like Pier, uh, gay people would gather to dance and sing. Over the years, special events began to arise where the mostly homeless or underemployed gay community of color could forget their troubles for a night of celebration. People who could not find a job or a hot meal could get a chance to at being called legendary queens and kings. Uh, there's like a little bit of a hint of uh, liberation there. Would you say so? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. this is total liberation. Mm-hmm. Although yeah. the last statement is a little funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who cannot find a job or a hot meal can be called legendary queens and kings. I'd rather just have a hot meal probably at that point, but oh. <laughs> that's beside the point. <laughs> yeah. um, well, most I assume that they get food there too. Yeah, hopefully. probably. I w- yeah, I would think so. I mean, well, you well, don't want to start. Give, yeah. it, a, yeah. <laughs> give <laughs> it the benefit okay. of the doubt. While most white Americans only think about the highly sexualized version of drag that emerged in the 1960s based on the new popularity of Las Vegas showgirls, this was only a small part of these drag balls. Other categories that participants would include were the Ivy League student, the business executive, and military uniforms. The goal of each drag event was to allow LGBTQ people of color to imagine themselves doing jobs that they would never be hired for in real life. The military was segregated, elite colleges would deny their applications, and major businesses would not interview them. 
And yes, one of those one of these jobs that these homeless youth would never be allowed to get was as was was as Las Vegas showgirls. I think that's a, Las Vegas. that's a typo, I think. Yeah. But during a drag ball, however, they could be whatever they wanted to be. Over time, teams emerged called houses. These houses were founded by the star drag performers to train newer talent. Yet these houses became so much more than a team. Houses became families. House mothers and house fathers would rent apartments, inviting their children, their children to invite, to leave the streets and live in these homes. Together, they shared resources and love like a real family. These houses helped the gay and trans people, performers of color, overcome homelessness, unemployment, isolation, and shame. Mothers of these drag houses, such as transgender icons of color, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Riviera, were leaders in the 1969 Stonewall riots. They later became the champions of the new LGBTQ movement for rights. This is the origin of Pride Month. Each June, we celebrate the anniversary of Stonewall, an event that birthed modern gay and trans rights. Yet with the rise of HIV and AIDS in the 1980s and 1990s, many houses were totally wiped out and died. Okay, stop there. <laughs> I mean, this, this has to... I mean, this has to shock everyone, right? Yeah. I mean, when you read this, this is... If you think from a Christian perspective, right? Not from a naturalist perspective, you can just say, it just happens, this is... But as a Christian pastor writing that these particular houses wiped out and died. Uh, to me, immediately, when, I, when I read this, um, I, was, I went back, and I know this is going to stir some emotions, but if you look at Romans 1, uh, 27, and the man likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committed shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Mm -hmm. Right, so you have a direct connection there with um, which I, what I you know men with men committing shameless acts, so sexual acts that are not supposed to be that way. Right before that, it says they gave up their relations with women. So what they used to do with women, right, a sexual relation with with a woman, now is to men. So you have homosexuality uh, leads to a due penalty uh, here. You have literally the story retold as a praise story, mm. right? Yeah. I mean, I, I grieve over the fact that I'm not trying to make fun of this. I think this is a very serious matter, but that these houses were totally wiped out and died, right? I mean, that this is, that, that this is the cause of HIV and AIDS, right? So sickness related to their lifestyle caused these houses where they gathered to wipe out and die, is it really the most loving thing to promote that which can lead to their death in this sense? Mm. Yeah. And this is apart from the mental challenges and depression and struggles and, and all those kind of things. Yeah. Right? I just don't see it. That yeah. you know, and this is just me looking at scripture, interpreting uh, scripture to to a passage, but you have that same connection brought here mm -hmm. in a very explicit way. But anyway, carry on. It's just, yeah, it's it's painful to I think hear the truth, but they are essentially, I mean, they're they're essentially hurting themselves with their own lifestyle. Yeah, they're essentially they're doing it to themselves. I mean, it's which kind of which, worth, which yeah. grieves? 
our heart too. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I just want to be clear. Uh, I'm not against any person. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm not against any person who identifies as, as uh, whatever they identify as. But as a Christian, uh, my heart yearns for them to see Christ and to follow him the way that, that, that God calls us to follow him. Yeah. At the same time that the drag community was dying off, white people discovered the art form. White people emphasized the sexuality of drag shows in order to draw in customers. Slowly, the white community began to make money from these drag balls that wouldn't allow the original creators to attend because of racism and classism. Nonetheless, the drag community persisted. In New York, Chicago, San Diego, and other cities, the tradition of drag as a place of liberation, community organizing, and education continues. Many of these drag groups provide housing, healthcare, financial assistance, sex ed, HIV testing, and more to LGBTQ homeless youth of color. Grant, uh, yeah, and that's so. That's the end of the the whole history of of it starting. Do you have something to add or respond to there, or? No, I don't want to be nitpicky, but it it kind of sounds that that the way the author moves from uh, the white people uh, that don't allow the original creators to attend their events of drag, and then then the author states, nonetheless, the drag community persisted. It seems like you're making a distinction between white drag performers and drag performers of color. So I'm not sure if that's if the if the article is against white drag performers per se, but anyway, I'm being nitpicky. Okay. I'm just, yeah, it's an interesting emphasis, and it's it's again that liberation theology uh, language, right? You have the white people here as the pictured as the oppressors who oppress um, the people of color. Yeah, here at this point. Uh, right, whether it's you know, it might be factually true. I, I have no knowledge of this. You know, this is not my country's history, so to speak. Um, and, and it might be true that the white people outlawed it for colored people at this point. But you're again talking in those uh, uh, the bad guys are the oppressors, and then the good guys are the ones oppressed. Yeah. So. Hmm. All right. So why Plymouth? So why this particular church? Grand Rapids is a city that does not do enough for people of color, the homeless, and LGBTQ people who continue to be targeted by far-right politicians. Many churches would like to eradicate drag as yet another symbol of black, Hispanic, queer, and transgender pride. Honestly, I think that's uh, probably, uh, and I got to check with my my black and Hispanic uh, brothers and friends, that's probably a um, pretty offensive thing for a lot of uh, other Christians to say that uh, drag is a black or a Hispanic pride. Mm. Right? I don't think that that's how they want their culture to be identified as. I think they might recognize that it's there, uh, but why it's uh, particularly there, you know, yeah. what, what their culture stands for. Um, I don't know about Grand Grand Rapids, uh, you know, but I'm not in this community, so it's hard for me to say that they get targeted specifically. I don't notice it, yeah. um, so you know, I mean, it's always, 
you know, I've lived in other countries where I was the odd one out. And so you, you read things differently and you see signals differently. You interpret them differently so they, they might feel and you might see them more clearly. So I don't know if that's the case. Um, but the question, what I'm more, most interested here, and even the... Um, uh, doesn't do enough for uh, people of color, the homeless and LGBTQ targeted by far right politicians is a very political statement. Um, mm-hmm. But that, that to decide. Uh, my point actually here, what I'm interested in is, is many churches would like to eradicate drag as yet another symbol of black, Hispanic, queer and transgender pride. Well, the point is uh, not that whether they and, and the idea, of course, is that's wrong. But the question is, is drag sinful? Mm-hmm. Because if it is, and you're not doing it, and, and you're accepting it as a church, you're actually in sin. This is not a neutral issue. Right. And so here the defense is, we're doing the right thing because these poor people are being uh, having a hard time uh, in our world and our society today. That might be completely true. They might totally feel that way. And there might even be evidence that it's hard to be a drag performer in our day and age and our Grand Rapids and and all of that. Um, But the point is not that that's um, challenging. The point is, is this what God wants us to live as? Mm -hmm. In the Bible, you never see... uh, you know, in in the book of Kings or or uh, anywhere in the prophets, uh, please stand up for um, uh, people who uh, cheat on their spouse because they're being mistreated. Mm-hmm. They have a hard time, all right? Uh, or in Proverbs, um, you know, stand up for uh, the prostitute because uh, her house, she has a lot of difficulties and she's being despised by the local uh, community. It never says that. Uh, the only thing that what we do see in the New Testament is go to them and share them the true gospel, the love of God, and, and point them to Christ. Mm-hmm. So we should interact, right? We shouldn't ignore it. We should interact, but we should interact the way that Jesus did and lead them to the way of life, which is the way of holiness and righteousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm almost wondering, I'm, I'm trying to be careful here because I'm, I'm kind of reading between the lines when I'm saying this, and I might maybe misinterpret the pastor's view here, but it it just seems like the pastor or the the author of this article is writing this and and is believing that our like churches like ours or a Protestant biblical, biblically interpretation churches are just merely uncomfortable with the idea of drag or we're just merely uncomfortable with the idea of transgender like we're transphobic we're just afraid of trans people and you just got to get over it but it's like no we're not like just afraid of them it it's just that it's actually not biblically sound Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that's just that's simply the point i think we're trying to make it's not about like i feel afraid of you or whatever i think maybe some christians might might be afraid of them uh might be uncomfortable with the idea because it's like this is totally brand new and we don't know what to do and how do we respond but at least the point that i think you and i are making or at least you're making because you are actually like arguing this more methodically um than i could but 
I, the point is that it's just, it's wrong. Not because it feels wrong, we feel uncomfortable, but because it really is wrong and it doesn't work with scripture. Yeah. It just doesn't. Well, and, and the, uh, the idea of a phobia, um, I think, and you know, as a Christian, if you think about this and you have a renewed mind in Christ, mm-hmm. right? So you're thinking about things a different way, the way that, that God wants us to think. That's the New Testament teaching, right? We have the mind of Christ. Uh, we look at things the way that Christ looks at things. When you think the way that Christ thinks, you think the things that Christ thinks are normal and the things that contradict Christ's thinking are abnormal. Mm-hmm. Right? right? That's the way. And, and you know, as if you think from God's perspective, you look through God's perspective and you say the things that God says are right, I agree with, and the things that God disagrees with, I disagree with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Um, to eradicate drag, uh, I think most churches are not so much. And uh, she makes the, uh, or sorry, the author makes the the switch from far right politicians to many churches, which are two separate fields. But you know, leave that as it may. Uh, I think many churches should eradicate sin from their congregation if it is sin. Yeah, and should have the response of, "This is not right. This is not." natural, the way that God wants us to live. This is not sacred and this is not holy, and therefore we should not accept it. Yeah, That's, that's the argument. It's from the mind of Christ. It's not, um, uh, you cannot look at this and say, oh, you know, these, these people are suffering, therefore we should accept it. Yeah, that's not, that's not it. I mean, that, that would be like with me, with my children saying, uh, when my child wants a candy and I'm thinking, I want to have an 18-year-old with teeth and a good health. Yeah. Uh, to me, then to say no, you cannot have candy, and then to see that the kid cries, uh, you know, and then say to my child, "Well, you know, I, I realize you're oppressed. Let me just give you all the candy I want, mm-hmm. the, all the candy you want." No, no, no. You to think righteously is to think about things in a way that are are correct, and and you know. Just so that nobody misinterprets me, I'm not saying that I'm the father of, of yeah. um, uh, the drag community or the LGBTQ plus community or or any other community for that matter, um, right? But the the point that I'm making is the way that you, if you see somebody do something that's gonna harm them, you cannot say we're gonna protect that activity because yeah. we love them. That's yeah, doesn't work. Yeah, and it's frankly wrong. Yeah. That makes yeah. no sense. Um, Plymouth UCC is so United Church of Christ is not like other churches. As Pastor Emeritus, Emeritas, Reverend Dahl Vindoran has long said, we're not radical, we're just early. We see and honor the value of LGBTQ people as well as the black, indigenous, and queer people of color. We remember that Pride Month honors the Stonewall riots and hope to continue the tradition of fighting for LGBTQ rights. Uh, that's interesting. The phrase, we're not radical, we're just early. So it's just basically what they're saying, or what Reverend Doug Van Doren is, was saying in that, is that we're just, we're we're early and coming up. You know, we might see that, that slavery is going to be an issue in the future, but we're already beginning to see the future of that. I don't know if I'm explaining myself correctly, but basically the, what their claim is, is that this is wrong, but we already know that it was wrong before everybody else, and we're going to be early in fighting this issue, whatever it is, before everybody else. So it's not that we're radical, it's just that we're early. 
I yeah, I mean this, uh, and I, I really want to, uh, um, you know, speak on this briefly. But uh, if you think about the the statement here, and you compare it to the New Testament, where the New Testament is opening up um, this this idea that in the last days people will be insensitive to sin and will begin to accept sin. And he's talking about the church. It will enter into the church. Paul mentions this multiple times, right? In the last days. He mentioned it in Timothy, for example. Um, you know, people will be lovers of pleasure, lovers of self, um, you know, holding on to a form of godliness without denying its power, that passage, for example. Um, if you think about that passage and you put this quote next to it, uh, what are you early in? Are you early in doing the right thing, or are you early in the fall of the church into immorality? Mm. Uh, what your statement should be saying: We're radical in the world, but we're right at home in the early in the New Testament church. If you can say that, you're on the right track. If you're saying we're not radical, we're just early, you're talking about worldly influences. Uh, you're opening the door. Let me put it that way: opening the door to worldly influences. Mm. Yeah. Our congregation believes that the world becomes a better place when we educate ourselves and uplift the marginalized. We fight for justice and freedom. We hope that the liberative love of Jesus can transform our hearts and minds to see through the lies. The lies. So what lies? Or is that, does yeah, that undefined. harken back to the beginning? Or Yeah, I think the lies are um, the drag is not sacred and the drag is wrong and the drag should be eradicated in the church, mm -hmm. right? I think the uh, here you can see the liberation theology in word coming through, right? The liberating love of Jesus can transform our hearts. But the question is, what is the liberating love of Jesus? It's the liberating love from sin, not from oppression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, And that's ultimately the, 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 the final line where I think this whole thing goes wrong. Love is not helping people that you feel are marginalized, help them get in a better spot. Uh, love, the liberating love of Jesus is to liberate people from their greatest trouble and their greatest oppression, which is sin, starting with uh, all the way back to Adam and Eve's fall into sin and their own heart of sin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's the point that we made in our earlier video, right? In our last video was about that. So. All right, concluding paragraph. Uh, join us this month, this Pride Month, as we make the loving choice to welcome drag performers into our community at the very moment when their rights are being threatened by fascism. May we show the wider world what radical love and hope looks like at our church. At the cost of showing the love of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the reality, right? I mean, I don't want to sound on a, you know, end on a depressive tone, but that's really show the wider world, but the radical love and hope, um, really, I think what the intent of Jesus looks like at our church, uh, that was visible in the early church. Go read the book of Acts and see what that looks like. It's a proclamation of the righteousness and love and gospel of God. Uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And as a result uh, of that gospel, uh, people didn't dare to join the church because it was a holy place. And yet God was adding to the people, uh, to the church every day, people who were being saved, who turned from their dead works and deadness to the living God.
That's a great place to end. Um, I really want to say first before we wrap up, uh, thank you for joining us. We're going to continue on with Pilgrim's Well series, uh, finishing Pilgrim's Progress. We yep. wanted to finish that really quick. Um, so you can join us next time for that. Uh, thank you for joining us and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Pilgrim's Well podcast. For more, be sure to follow us from wherever you're listening from, whether it be from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. To find us online, go to seventhref.org. We'll see you in the next episode.